Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the show today on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Jeremy Knight. Jeremy is the founder and CEO of Equinet Media, an inbound marketing and content marketing agency and HubSpot Gold partner for growing business in the manufacturing, technology and professional services sectors. Uh, Jeremy, very warm welcome to you today and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Scott, thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Jeremy, and it's a lovely day for it as well. Um, I think a good place to start would be by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that as we record this podcast in mid-July 2021, we are still living under some form of COVID social restrictions, and that's now been the case for the best part of 15 or so months. Reflecting on the pandemic at large, to what extent has all of this affected you and affected your business, would you say? Um, well, certainly it affected the business as it did, I think, every single business in the short term when things first, uh, the first lockdown happened. Um, and the, it was something of a shock, uh, to, to the system, but being in the sector we're in, um, I would not say that we were in one of the sectors that suffered as much as many, for example, in travel or or retail or hospitality. Um, And there's, I I believe, a strong sense. You you go back to the 90s and, you know, people were battening down the hatches in business when there were, Know, financial fallout or something like that, and, and they, they stopped marketing. Whereas um, I launched this business back in 2009, just after the, the last financial crisis. And um, people, businesses, that is, have con- continued to market through that. And to a certain extent, uh, that's continued to be true throughout this pandemic. There's a realization, I think, that one has to keep going. And in fact, if you're um, <clears throat> in in the digital spaces and you are able to help people reach their customers um, in meaningful ways, then that's that's quite a good business to be in in that regard. Um, that being said. Uh, there was an awful lot of things that happened during that period that um, I would say, on the one hand, threw up levels of anxiety, which had a real impact on people in the business. Mm. Some of those things impacting the business. Um, the, the, I would go as far as saying, the, without being explicit about it, but it threw up, to a certain extent, uh, a greater realization around mental health issues over over this whole period, 
Um, and a, th a third thing being that it seems to me that it, it, it in, in, a, in, a, in a way, has accelerated things that were maybe beginning to happen anyway. I, I mean by that uh, things like uh, a, a kind of mix of working from home and, and from the office and maybe a rebalancing of how these things can be done. And it, whilst there's a, an awful lot of tragedy and uh, that's come through this whole period, in some ways, in business, I can't help the feeling that there's been a, a kind of readjustment that ultimately has accelerated the, the pace of change and quite potentially for the better. Or maybe I'm just hopeful, <laughs> being optimistic about it. But. I think you are very right in that sense. I think that it has accelerated something of a digital revolution, hasn't it? Particularly with regard to our working practices. Um, as good as flexible working, of course, has been, we do have to realise that it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. And so that hybrid approach to working that you spoke about there, I think that is probably going to become the status quo going forward for quite a lot of businesses, isn't it? Because we're taking into consideration work-life balance there, time efficiency, but also that social interaction within an office setting that a lot of people feel like they've maybe needed and taken for granted pre-pandemic. Yeah, it's <clears> there <throat> it doesn't seem to be much consideration uh, uh, for the different types of businesses. It's just the same for all businesses. And some businesses, of course, simply don't have the option of being able to say, well, you can work from home some of the time. And that's, that's just a reality, for example, you know, in, in manufacturing. Um, but um, we in this country are largely a services-based uh, country, I think, when it comes to business, um, I, I do think that there's some. We're, we're at an interesting point in time right now, where there's quite a lot of uncertainty, and it's just been thrown open. I, I don't want to get political about it. Um, well, I probably do, but I won't. <laughs> um, but I, I think that. Um, there's quite a lot of uncertainty about whether or not you should keep the app, um, whether or not um, you know you, you're safe coming back in into the office. And and as you've said, there are definite benefits for for creative industries anyway, where um, being able to bounce off each other, the energy that exists when it's in person as opposed to over the screen is. is distinctly different so things like ideation are, are far better when 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 done in person um so yeah it's there's there's as as we i i hate that um freedom day it feels like mm. it's a it's it's it seems tack handed to me it's like now we're politically trapped in the government's promise of freedom uh, having said we'll follow the science uh, all the way through. And it does feel like something of a gamble. And so as an employer, I have to bear 
bear in mind how people are interpreting things and how they feel about that. Um, you know, I've got some people here who had COVID twice. Um, they weren't here, they were working from home, obviously, but uh, yeah, there's, and, and, and some people who don't want to take the vaccination. So, um, and you, you know, it's not a, is it a business's call to make a kind of moral call on that? I'm not mm -hmm. sure it is. So, uh, you know, there's, there's, there, there are some unresolved issues, not surprisingly, you, you might, you might say. Absolutely right. And um, there is a lot of uncertainty moving forward and there are a lot of real questions as we sort of look toward the post-COVID world. But I think a key consideration for us is to not lose sight of some of the real lessons that I think we've taken from the last 15 or so months. Um, if you sort of had to look back over the sort of pandemic period by and large, Jeremy, would you say that you yourself have really learned anything from this experience of being thrown in at the deep end and having to sort of crisis manage, if we call it that? Um, well, I, I, absolutely, yes. I mean, throughout my life, it seems to have been a series of big changes uh, at different times. And this was a very big change. I think the the very big difference here is that it was a change for everybody all at the same time. I've never witnessed that in my life. I've, I've probably most of us haven't because you know we haven't been in war or something like that. So uh, that it's okay to not be infallible. <laughs> um, that you have to look after yourself as much as you have to look after others. Um, <clears throat> I, I personally ended up with, um, I've got four, four, four kids, they kids, most of them grown, but um, one had a girlfriend from Argentina who was then having to stay with us in, in the bubble in our home, and another who was... Um, uh, you know, having to leave uni and with her uni friend, so we ended up with a house full of people and a mix of, you know, a very diverse group. And it was rather special, actually, all being thrown together in this big bubble. And at the same time as managing... Um, different responses from from different people who work in the business. So some people absolutely love lockdown. I mean, they got fitter. They maybe are possibly more introverted and just really enjoyed um, the, the ability to, to be alone and just to get on with what they enjoyed doing, um, whereas others uh, felt anxiety through isolation, I suppose. And so there was a definite sense of um, it's not one size fits all. And it was also a challenge from a leadership perspective, um, communicating mm -hmm. with the team in in the same way as, as had been done before. You know, I'm 
quite quick area to walk around. Probably a bit of a pain, but you know, there's uh, there's humour in the workplace. There's there's um, there's, a, there's a kind of buzz about the place, which just doesn't necessarily translate online. So that 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 has been that has been difficult. Um, but we're not we're not moving towards getting everybody back. You know, we're 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 probably uh, going to say at least two days in the office, of which one does need to be the same day that everybody's in. Um, but then allowing people to make their own decisions, assuming the line manager knows as to what they do with the the other day. Um, anybody who's not client facing can also choose to work you know, yeah, out of the normal working day, mm. assuming that, that they don't have um, dependabilities uh, that impact other people. But it's I've been. I was very surprised by productivity as as we m- moved into the first lockdown. It, it, after the first month, six weeks, productivity went up. Um, Staggering, so isn't it? It, it, it is surprising. It was surprising to me, and there's a kind of resilience, I suppose. Um, I do think that having we we have um, a strong sense of culture in the business, and I think that helps us through. Albeit that I do think that the you know the foundations of that culture have been somewhat stretched by everything now being remote. So um, there's work to be done. So the first week of August, we're getting on the river, kayaks, canoes. Going off and um, going off on an adventure, and then going for a, a meal together. Mm. We'll uh, either ask people to show their double vaccination passports, so called, I think, um, uh, or, or do a test beforehand, uh, which is also something I believe that we'll do at the beginning of each day when people are coming in. Uh, with the lateral flow test, although I don't really know whether we can trust those, but that's a different matter. There's a lot to take from all of that. I think when you mentioned sort of productivity going up, I think that has enhanced trust between sort of CEOs and their employees and also the importance of company culture is so, so important. Keeping that sort of spirit of togetherness that has really been enhanced by the pandemic. I think that's going to be absolutely critical moving forward into that sort of post-pandemic period if we do indeed enter that after July the 19th because there are still a great many variables in all of this. And just before we do wrap up, Jeremy, I do want to sort of talk about that period a little bit more. Um, As I say, it's still a huge sort of question mark as to sort of what kind of world we're going into beyond July the 19th. But in an ideal world, if we can enter that post-pandemic period and leave COVID behind as an immediate and present danger, what are your hopes for the business and where do you see yourselves being by this time in 2022? Well, I, I actually want to harp back on something you just said, which I think is enormously important. And you, you, you mentioned that 
there's greater trust between leadership and staff. And I think that that lack of trust was of a different era. <laughs> Actually, I, 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 it, it's being able to trust people um, and that 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 changes everything. I, I'm not saying that I didn't trust people before, but certainly any sense of people not necessarily doing what they should be doing all of the time has been absolutely dispelled. And 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 I I I like to think that we'll see um, a new way of working emerging, which is um, quite significantly more focused on the quality of the time that you spend in the office, which has probably got a lot to do with the setup of the office and how you can engage and be in the office, which is less potentially death-bound. Um, it's, it's interesting because, of course, you have a duty of care to people and they're all supposed to be on five-pointed chairs and all the rest of it. So I'm not sure to what extent, um, you know, that's just wishful thinking. But um, I'm a, a part of a, an organization called the Entrepreneurs Organization, and um, I'm the, the communications chair in that organization. And um, I have had a lot of fellow entrepreneurs who have been having the conversation about how to uh, convince people to come back into the office, what they're doing with their offices, and how um, people are responding. And the, the best outcomes seem to be from those that are reconfiguring those offices, that are doing learning lunches, that are being very interactive with people during the time. And, you know, there, I say, even just making it more fun to be at work. And there's 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 one last thing, which is that, that we're humans, and humans need connection. Um, and given the significance of the time we spend at work, then it it just it it has the potential for leaders, for employers to imagine a new way forward I think so where I hope to be in 2022 would be very much in a hybrid world where you know I've reconfigured uh, this this where I've got four floors of a Georgian building mm -hmm. and um, I've got lots of plans for how we're going to change some of the rooms uh, to, to be more sort of collaborative spaces with sofas and white walls, uh, you know, uh, uh, that you can write on and um, ideate. So I, I, I do think that we, we've possibly seen a change that um, is, 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 is going to continue to be amplified, um, hopefully, post-pandemic. I mean, the hopefully was that we're post-pandemic. 
Yeah, exactly. It's whether we're going to enter sort of the post-pandemic in the immediate future, which is probably the biggest question mark of all, isn't it? And I think once we understand more about that variable and just at what point we can leave COVID-19 behind, I actually think it would be wonderful to welcome you back onto the programme, Jeremy, and just talk about how the workplace has changed, because I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on the show with us today. It's been a real eye-opening experience, Um, and also it's raised a lot of questions as well about what exactly is the workplace of the future going to look like. So thank you indeed for joining us. You're very welcome. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. And lastly, Jeremy, please do continue as well to take care and stay safe with all that's still going on because we're not out of the woods with the COVID situation yet, but fingers crossed that better days are certainly ahead of us. Here's to that. It was a pleasure to welcome Jeremy Knight, founder and CEO of Equinet Media, onto today's programme, and I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who's going to be sharing his take on the events of the last 15 or 16 months of the pandemic and his hopes for the weeks ahead of us. That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. Uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff. And, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can, Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you, and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods, and services, I'm not sure, 
What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy 
when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be 
considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh- 
uh, shut down. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely.
Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare. 
mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy, all of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not Uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, 
they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.